Well, I thought I would pick up at the wonderful place that Howard left us off in last week's sermon. And everyone has gone back to school, so I guess I'm Henry, your substitute teacher. Well, he mentioned at the end of his sermon a turning point, that we were at a turning point. And if you recall, he said it's two turning points. Number one, we have finished kind of the major story of Jacob and Esau, and we're turning to the story of Joseph, which is the longest single narrative in Genesis. It takes up 25% of the book. And then he said it was a turning point from our study of Genesis to our preparation for the high holy days, perhaps even a better term than holidays. And so first we encounter Rosh Hashanah, and I think we're apple picking tomorrow for that. Is that right? Yes. And so that is the new year. And so we'll be using the word new quite a bit in today's sermon. Now, Howard's exhortation last week. Let's have a fresh new... By the way, how do I know this? How do I know that was his exhortation? Because you know how our teens or our middlers used to have that note thing where they take notes during the entire sermon? Well, I key the entire sermon. Isn't that incredible? Why? I want to get it in the fabric of my being so I know what to do with it during the week, yeah? So he said, let's have a fresh new start with turning and repentance and forgiveness and redemption and restoration and hope and new living, you know? That's when I want to pop out of my seat and yell, what? Yeah, see, amen, right? And then he always makes the point, the wonderful point, that the holiday is a microcosm of life. Yes, if the holiday takes us from A to Z, you know, from where we are to all of those words he used to this other place of freshness and new living, forgiveness. That's just a picture of what's going on in our lives that we, we do in a micro version in the holiday. So that's a beautiful thing that he continues to teach us. And then, of course, my exhortation today is let's make profound progress in displaying the new creation in the new year. And how about this passage from 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Therefore, if anyone, is anyone here today? If anyone is in Messiah, would that be anyone here today? If anyone is in Messiah, they are a what? A new creation. This is straight out of Isaiah 65, 66, Ezekiel 36. And it's in the form of human flesh. They are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Lo and behold, new things have come. It doesn't mean we're in the fullness of the new creation or we'd be resurrected and not needing any teaching this morning. Yes, but we're in a foretaste of that. Favorite word, prolepsis, a foretaste of that. And so we need to be in the reality of the new creation that began when Yeshua was raised from the dead. I love that Eric teaches a series of courses here on resurrection, and this year he's doing one, especially from a Jewish perspective, that shows resurrection as a theme throughout the entirety of scriptures. I hope you're there. But you know the new covenant says that Yeshua was raised from the dead as the what? The first fruits 
of the resurrection, that foretaste of the new creation of Isaiah 65 and 66. And we need to walk in newness of life now as a foretaste of what it will be like in the future in the dark age in which we live. So Howard rightly says we're at a turning point, and why don't we make this turning point a point of turning at at least three levels in the new year. Number one, we need to turn first from sin. Sin does not merely do personal and private damage. Sin does communal and public damage. Sin, according to the Tanakh, pollutes or contaminates the sanctuary of God. And this week, I had the privilege of reading that little essay buried in the back of Jacob Milgram, his commentary on numbers. If you don't know who he is, he was the greatest living commentator on the book of Leviticus. But this is his commentary on numbers, and he has a little essay at the back called The Effect of the Sinner on the Sanctuary. So remember, our sin is not private or personal. It's also communal and public. The big issue he highlights the end of his essay is God will not dwell in a polluted sanctuary. One of the most striking statements about this in a different context appears in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23, 14 about the camp that's ready, the camp of the Lord that's ready to take on the enemies of the Lord. Since the Lord your God, or since yod heh vav your God walks in the midst of your camp. To do what? To deliver you and defeat your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Your camp must be holy. And he must not see the God who sees, he must not see anything indecent among you or he will what away from you? The very word that we highlight in Jewish and Messianic Jewish context, shuv, the word for turn, return. We're all about turning and returning through our whole lives constantly until we reach the olam haba. But here's a scary statement, is it not? That if there's sin in the camp, he will turn away from you. So our first turning point is from sin. What's at stake in deciding to turn away from sin? The presence of God and Messiah among us. Don't rob yourself of the presence of God. Don't rob your community of the presence of God. And don't rob that crooked and perverse generation of the presence of God and Messiah. By what? Sin. What else is at stake? Our ability to display the new creation at whatever level each one of us is at on that road to fullness of new creation. To display the new creation and Messiah and shine like the nighttime stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Homework assignment. Isaiah 65 and 66, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, Daniel 12, 3, Deuteronomy 32, 5, and Philippians 2, 15. 
You email me, you can have the slide deck. And I'm sorry to report that when I preached on Philippians, I wanted to play Earth, Wind, and Fire, Shining Star, and I was afraid to do it here. And in coffee shop, Howard said, you should have done it. Because then you would have heard, you're a shining star, no matter who you are, shining bright to see, for them to see. Yes? All right. If you don't know who Earth, Wind, and Fire is, you're too young, look it up. It's what Google is for. That worked very well in a recent uh, uh, two-week series at a congregation. So we're also at another point of turning. What is that point of turning? Second from idolatry. Howard's exhortation last week in two points. First, an explanation, and then his point. Israel had an issue with household idols and foreign gods. A difficult time in separating themselves not entirely from the world they lived in, but separating themselves from the things that what? Stole their heart away in the surrounding culture, and they had this problem until after the Babylonian captivity. What is stealing your heart away? What will we do about it in preparation for the new year and then for living in newness of life all new year? He then explicitly said, what about us and our gods and idols? And then he said, let's take a personal inventory. Have I attached myself to foreign gods or idols? And then I add, what is stealing my heart away from God and his kingdom that I am to seek first? And here I ask another question that Eric also asked in a wonderful course last year called Identity and Idolatry, though I'm going to approach it from a different perspective. What's an idol? Maybe we don't relate to, don't have idolatry, don't have an idol because we don't understand what's an idol. How about anything that occupies our heart or steals our heart away to the extent that it prevents us from saying the ve'ahavta with the whole of our being. So it's going to be a siddur lesson this morning. Let's turn in our siddur to page 26. Do you have the same addition to me such that the Shema is on page 26 and 27? And so the first line, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, that's that's on the right, in bo- uh, yeah, on the left, hear, O Israel, or listen, O Israel, or even obey, O Israel. yod heh vav is our God, and it could be translated yod heh vav alone. We don't have any other gods. It could be translated that way, no idolatry. And then we read very soft breath, the instructions say. We read that second line, Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Ba'ed. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever. We say that with light breath. And then you'll notice, those that know this, come back with full force and saying, Ve'ahavta, and we rumble the rafters, yes? So that's where it starts, Ve'ahavta, Eit Adonai Elohecha, Behol Avacha A'ah, right? I did too many A'ahs there. Uvakol Nafshecha'a, Uvakol Me'odecha. So this is where we're saying, Ve'ahavta is the verb, and you shall love and you shall love. You shall love what? Who? 
The direct object marker is the next word in Hebrew, and then it gives you the name yod heh vav heh. You shall love yod heh vav heh, the beautiful divine name. You shall love the Lord your God with the whole of your heart and with the whole of your nefesh, your being, and with the whole of your might. And so what I'm asking is what is it in our lives that we are so attached to that our heart is so stolen away by that when it comes time to sing the Ve'ahavta, we really can't do it with our whole being. So our starting place of what our messianic life is all about, Jew is Jew, Gentile is Gentile, is loving Yahweh our God with all of our heart, being, and muchness. I use the name because it wants it to be said. He wanted his people to know him and call on his name. And that is, in fact, how Paul found the Messianics. So I tread lightly there, like our visiting scholar did this year. But what stops us in our lives every day from arriving on Shabbat and pouring out the Ve'ahavta with our whole being? That's the examination we need to do. So that by the end of the service... After we've prayed, sung, participated in Avodah to the nth degree, and we get to the closing piece of liturgy, today the Elenu, am I right? Which it just so happens I didn't know, but that's what I'm teaching on. You can also say the Elenu with your whole being. And I'll explain how those are connected. And we're going to ask the question a second time. What's an idol? And maybe you find loving the Lord your God who is invisible with your whole heart, I don't know, maybe it's not visible enough. Would this help? Are you married? If no, do you want to eventually be married? If yes, would you want a spouse who took the vow and said, love you to death until my death, amen, but then saw other people through your entire marriage in the form of extramarital affairs, would that be acceptable to anyone in this room? If yes, please leave. <laughs> Would you accept that? Or did you expect the whole of the heart and the whole of the being and the whole of the muchness to be poured out in that marriage into who knows which person it was coming from in the marriage that day, that hour, that minute, that week? Isn't that the kind of marriages we want? Do you think God wants anything less? He loves with a love that's jealous, and he pours it out this way, and we've got to respond this way. And if we can bring ourselves to get past sin and idolatry, we're going to have a good marriage. We're going to have a great marriage, and that's going to play out in the invisible relationship with the one true living God of Israel now and grow and grow and grow until you can't wait to see him what? Face to face. That's where we're headed. I hope that helps take the vagary out of what is an idol. Think of it as someone that gets in between the, the spouses in a marriage that's not supposed to be separated in any way. No one else is supposed to get in the way. What else is an idol? Anything that occupies our heart to the extent that it prevents us from saying the Elenu with our whole being, which we'll now say. If the starting place 
is love. And love includes obedience and service and doing things for that person in the normal course of everyday life. If it starts with love and that grows the entire marriage, then we got to get all the way to, if we can say that and mean it with kavanah, with intentionality, with fervor, then we can get all the way to the elenu and say that with the same fervor. Siddur lesson number two. Let's go to page 107 of the Siddur. And you will find there the elenu. And elenu, if we were going to be wooden in our translation, means something like upon us, or it could mean uh, our duty or our obligation. It's upon us. And then you read the first paragraph. It's our obligation, it's our duty, it's upon us to do the following. But look at paragraph two that we often read. Since we trust in you, Lord our God, we soon, may we soon behold the glory of your might. Look at the hunger there for seeing the glory of his might. When, when, look, when you remove the abominations from the earth and what is banished, all idolatry. There's no way to get to the Elenu and pour that out with your whole being if our six days a week is characterized by idolatry, something that takes our heart away from God so that by the time we come to pour it out on Shabbat, there are idols there so we can't say with a clear conscience and mean it, I am looking forward to the day when you, when you wipe this abomination and idolatry from the earth, which you happen to be seeing displayed in endless 30 minutes on the 11 o'clock news. Lately, it seems like all abomination and idolatry, where we are, we're the people that have the ability to shine light in this darkness. Look at this. When all the world will be made perfect under the reign of the Almighty. Look at the longing here for the Olam Haba, the world to come. And all the children of humanity will call on your name. And all the wicked of the earth will be turned to you. May all the inhabitants of the world realize and know that every knee must bend, every tongue must swear allegiance to you. Lord our God, may they bend the knee and worship before you and give honor to the glory of, their, of your name. May they accept the yoke of the kingdom. And may you what? You're actually closing by saying, may you establish your reign over them quickly, forever, and to eternity. It's the same stream of prayer Yeshua taught. May your kingship come, may your will be done. Where? On the earth as it is in the heavens. It's got to be done here. We got to be the ones yearning for it. May you establish your reign over them quickly, forever, and to eternity. The kingdom is yours, and to all eternity you will reign in glory. And then the reader says, as it is written in your Torah, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And the whole congregation says what? And it is said. It is said where? Where is it said? In Zechariah 14.9. That's a citation of Zechariah 14.9. Look at it on the screen. There it is, straight out of the New American Standard is the one in blue. And yod heh the Lord, will be king over all the earth. In that day, yod heh will be the only one and his name the only one. Meaning, no other gods will ever be named again and that name that we will now pronounce will be the only name ever named again. 
Do you long for that day? Do you understand there's no way to read the Elenu with Kavanaugh and passion and truly mean it if six days a week we're not living in that reality in the nitty-gritty of our everyday lives? And that is the turning I'm calling for in the new year, that we would have a richer participation in the new creation, in the nitty-gritty of life, wherever we are in our Sunday through Friday. More on this, because we're closing with the Elenu today. Do you know that the Jewish synagogue service was largely designed to end with a focus on the Alam Haba, so that you would go into your week not losing sight, like we said in Philippians, of the coming day of Messiah. It's not pie in the sky. It's not invisible nonsense that doesn't tie to the nitty-gritty of our life. It's a thing you must see being a new creation and Messiah, and you must live in the nitty-gritty. And if you do, and if we make progress as a community by getting rid of sin and getting rid of idolatry, when you say the Ve'ahavta, you're going to mean it, and you're going to crave from the day he comes down. There are nights that my wife will just pop out the Elenu. And especially if I get disillusioned at what I see, she'll bring me back to the Elenu. We must give the world a foretaste of the kingship of God and Messiah and the new creation every day until it comes in its fullness. Of all the persons able to do this, it's us. We're the ones that were taught and put into the heritage and tradition of treating Shabbat as not just today's Shabbat, but a foretaste of the coming eternal Shabbat, being a part of God's rest forever. Well, what's at stake in deciding to turn from idols? Do you sense a theme coming? The presence of God and Messiah among us. Do not rob yourself of the presence of God and Messiah in the nitty-gritty of your everyday life. Do not rob your congregation of the presence of God and Messiah in the nitty-gritty of your everyday life. And do not rob the crooked and perverse generation in which we live of the presence of God and Messiah. You can leave a wake like a boat leaves a wake in the water behind you everywhere you go if you're walking in the new creation. What's at stake? Our ability to display the new creation in Messiah and shine like the nighttime stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You ever seen the nighttime stars? Marguerite and I once went to this remote place, Logan, Ohio, I think. We went to a place with no signs, no lights of any kind made by humanity. Uh, somebody took us there to go stay at this little cabin and that night, I forget what time it was, it was long after dinner, maybe 10, 11 p.m., they took us outside, and I looked up, and I thought, oh, I saw stars like the sand on the seashore. That should have been a Bible passage. That's my exegetical humor for all those who are new. Yes? I saw stars, and we laid in the grass at night, and we just looked at the stars, and we thought, oh, shine like stars in the nighttime sky, in the midst of a what? A crooked and perverse generation. There's a third point of turning. It's in general. In general, in the course of everyday life, let us 
turn to God in all the good in life. Some people get blessed with mostly a good life. God promised Israel the promised land as a good land. Yes? But Deuteronomy chapter 8 does not escape my attention. Here, let me paraphrase and contemporize. Be careful when you go into the promised land that I promised you, be careful after you go to the all-you-can-eat buffet. Be careful after you're satiated with the food and the wine in that land, you should see the grapes. Be careful. Be careful after that meal when you get in your hot tub full of milk and honey and take your milk and honey bath and thank God that you had a jacuzzi in your home. Be careful lest you forget me. yod heh vav You forget me and the fact that I rescued you out of slavery in the promised land. Be careful. There is nothing like good and ease to Steal our heart away so that we don't depend on the living God. And that is precisely why Yeshua taught so much about tell those like who are rich in this world, all that kind of thinking. You cannot serve God and what? You would think it would be something else. Like you cannot serve God and, you know what I mean? So many congregations say the devil or something. You cannot serve God and what? Mammon, the Aramaic word for money and possessions. And the word is like, like slave Slave service. You can't be enslaved to God instead of Pharaoh. You can't be enslaved to God and money and possessions. One of the two will become your master, and you will serve that one, what? To the exclusion of the other, like the extramarital affair we just talked about. When somebody gets an idol and strays from the spouse, all the investment is now going in Lady Folly or Mr. Folly. And Lady Wisdom has been left in the dust. Let the extramarital affair be our great example of what idolatry is. When something takes over our heart and we cannot say the Ve'ahavta or the Elenu and mean it fully because our lives are somehow idolatrous. So if you have good, let us turn to God in all the good and always be focused on God in all the good in our lives. And then let us turn to God in all the hardship, difficulty, trouble, service, pain, and suffering in life. I thought of actually adding 45 more words so that we could cover all our bases. Anybody got hardship, difficulty, trouble, service, pain, or suffering in their life? I got a hard word for us here. Beware of those who have fallen prey to the health, wealth, gospel of the United States of America. It's far from biblical. As was prayed at the start of the service, let's be real about life and its service, its trouble. In Matthew 6, 34b, Yeshua says what? Each day has its own adequate health and wealth. Hallelujah, can I get a witness? Did I quote it correctly? No. What did Yeshua teach? Each day has its own sufficient what? Trouble. There it is. Hardship, difficulty, service, pain, suffering. Each day has its own adequate trouble. I read a book on my summer vacation, seven days. It was called The Old Testament is Dying. I don't have time to tell you about it, but I have time to tell you about this part of it. He said one of the problems related to this 
is congregations that are contemporary are mostly only singing prayer, songs, and psalms. I mean praise. Praise, songs, and psalms. They have cut 41% of the psalms out of the Bible and don't sing them because they are about what? Lament and crying out in hardship, difficulty, trouble, service, pain, and suffering. And you know what that's led to? That's led to a superficial, one-dimensional, unblessed messianism that doesn't live in the real world of the hardship, difficulty, trouble, service, pain, and suffering of others in the congregation. And so you would be, please don't be this person, right? I just preached this at New Life. I got to have the liberty here to do it. Please don't be this person, right? The person that got up at six o'clock this morning and their spouse dropped down on the floor in the kitchen. So they called 911 and the ambulance came. And when the ambulance came, it ran over the dog. And when it left, it backed over the dog again and hit the car. And so they, at the hospital, the, it was a heart attack and they were gone. So you lost your spouse, the dog is dead and your car is smashed, but you come to service and they ask you, how are you doing, and what do you answer? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Sounds good. You might even claim you're being like Job, but what you don't realize is you're trampling all over the persons in the congregation standing next to you or hanging on by a thread today because they have hardship, difficulty, trouble, service, pain, and suffering that you wouldn't think of having in your, I won't have that theology. Be careful that you're not that person. We need to live in the real world. Unless you think uh, intense Henry can't relate to any of this because he has such a great life. Can I just talk about economic hardship and loss and physical suffering for a minute? Uh, when Marguerite and I got married, we were two of the poorest people you could know. And one week we were so poor, if we didn't get that $35 check from her parents, we would not eat. And one week, it was so bad, there was so much going on, we actually ran out of grocery money. And by some mercy, her mother, she's Italian, made this big pan of manicotti. Y'all know what this is? And so we looked at that big pan and said, that's a week's worth of manicotti right there. You buy a little lettuce, you put that manicotti there, we're going to eat for six days. We were like, hallelujah. Yes? But here's the thing. In day six, that manicotti was gone. We ran out of manicotti. So we had nothing to eat on day, day seven. But of course, when you rely on God, the phone rang. Yes? Henry, how about coming to dinner? In those days, I'm sorry for all you young people, it was an actual phone that looked like this. You picked it up. You could, you could cover it. I'm sorry. I forgot we had young people in the audience. And it was in the wall. We just had somebody come to our house and look at the wall and go, what is that? Yes, we'll come to dinner. So we arrive at dinner. We're so excited. We're thanking God. And the woman says to Marguerite, Marguerite, because you're Italian, I made manicotti for dinner. <laughs> when the story's over, I call it the seven days of manicotti. <laughs> God fed Israel with manna from special places. We have something related, manicotti. In 2013, three people in our family were out of work, two in Massachusetts, one in the state of Ohio. We depleted our entire life savings, stock option income, retirement income, 100% was depleted on three family members. Think that was a good year? Think I just said, we're blessed all year long? No, but at the end, it did bless us. I'll explain why. And then let's just talk for a minute. And it's been that way ever since, by the way, ever since 2013. 
And then let's just talk about physical suffering for a minute. In 1998, after 10 years of ulcerative colitis, bleeding ulcers in the colon, I found myself for three weeks in Riverside Hospital. And because I was so severely ill in that episode, I couldn't get out of bed. And my daughter, Emily, came to visit, and she walked into the room one day, and she said, oh! and I said, what? She goes, Dad, you look like a Holocaust victim. And I was thinking, like, what? But I hadn't been out of bed, and I had been sick for a long time. And so when they left, I sneaked a peek in the hospital room mirror, and I thought, oh, I did look skeletal. And the doctors had told me, nurses told me, do not go to the restroom alone. Don't get out of bed. You're going to be too weak. You will... You will hurt yourself and break bones. Well, did I listen? No, this one time I didn't listen. So I got up and I started to head. It was just four steps from my bed to get to the restroom. And I made three of the steps and then I blacked out and I fell on the floor, the tile uh, mosaic floor of Riverside Hospital with my face pressed against the baseboard. And I was on the opposite side of the room where the toilet and the button to get help was. Now, when I landed, and you have to know a little bit about who I was before that, so I was one of those guys that would have, would have said something like this, like 25, 30 years ago, I would just say to you, uh, Peter, suck it up, would you? Suck it up, right? I was that, that insensitive kind of guy. And now I crashed onto the floor, and I was walking with Messiah in those days. And I remember when I hit the floor, I was like, whoa, ow, you know? And then the uh, first thing I did is I looked up and I said, you know, I did not know human beings could get sick to this extent. This is, wow, what a learning experience for me. I did not know anyone could be this sick, this weak, this gone. And now my face is against the tile. And I love to tell this story because I love to say, that tile, that mosaic tile floor, it was gorgeous. I mean, I was down there for at least 20 minutes just looking at the beauty uh, cliff every single square tile was a different color and and i was just like oh my this, this this floor is beautiful and then i began to pray about my condition and what i'm going to do and i said to god you know thank you for this because i would never know what people suffer if i never suffered so thank you for this and then i had the i it was like the supernatural strength of it would make superman look weak and I was able to get up, and I, I cleaned and washed the bathroom floor myself of blood. And I got it all spick and span like it was before I went in there. And I snuck back into bed, and I rang the buzzer. And guess who came in? The nurse that said to me, and I quote, you get out of bed and go to the bathroom alone, I'll personally kill you. <laughs> it was her. And she saw my face, and she said, what happened to your face? She went, you went to the restroom, didn't you? I said, Please don't kill me because the floor didn't. The bottom line is, shortly thereafter, I was raced back to the hospital and a doctor came in and he said, you know, Henry, uh, you are one step away from toxic megacolon. You have to have your colon surgically removed and you got to live with a device the rest of your life or you're going to die and you need to make that decision like with you and your wife right now, I'm going to step out of the room and I'm coming back. You got to decide what you're doing. So, you know, the reason I wear a vest is not because I'm an aristocrat, is because the V hides my device, which people mistake for other things. And I've been publicly embarrassed because of it. So that's why I wear a vest. But you know what? All the economic hardship and difficulty and physical suffering, I would never trade it. All we have to do is turn to God in it all. 
because all the same things happen to us that happen to anyone. We just get to go through it with God and Messiah. What is my conclusion about economic hardship, physical suffering, and things like that after 60 years of life? I have concluded this, and the Bible bears me out. We seek God and find God in hardship, difficulty, trouble, service, pain, and suffering in life in ways we otherwise would not. We grow, we change, we mature, we get transformed in hardship, difficulty, trouble, service, pain, and suffering in life in ways we would otherwise not. I went on a date with my wife last Saturday night, the night before State University of New York online nursing school opened and she'd be teaching and working crazy hours again. So we went on a date and we were listening to Mill Street Blues, pour out the blues in their little place where they play. And she leaned into me at that date and she said, kiss me. And I said, are you kidding? And she said, no, I said, great. So I kissed her. And then she leaned in again and she said, you know what, Henry? I said, what? I would never trade the hardship, difficulty, troubled, service, pain, and suffering that we went through our whole lives. And in fact, we have become better Messiah followers since 2013's disaster than we were before. Why? Because it's always easy to say, praise the Lord, I trust God. When you're sitting on stock options that you can invest, pull out, and use anytime. And I'm not suggesting you don't have them. Don't misunderstand me. It's not a message like that. But there is a difference in the way we reach out to and get serious with God in all of this that it seems does not happen. And so it's there by design. Even there's a a great scholar named Fittis that says, humanity will not attain to its greater good without all the suffering in the world. Look at the way everybody comes together when there's a hurricane that wipes out a population. You know what you get a glimpse of? You get a glimpse of how people should behave every day in the Alam Haba. Even people who don't know God, they rise up. And all of a sudden it's like, there are no differences, there are no parties, there is no politics, there's no nothing. It's just... Pour yourselves into other human beings. Everybody bear everybody's burdens and go. That's a foretaste of the Alamaba. And then the hurricane gets all taken care of and everyone goes back to their sin and idols. That can't be us. That can't be us. We need to keep making progress. Did you hear that passage read from the Berit Hadashah today about not like running in vain? Do you remember that in Philippians? Paul wants to know that he didn't run in vain. It's wonderful that our congregation takes care of our congregational leader and on a certain holiday gives him an extra gift. But you know what the greatest gift we could all give to Howard Silverman is? To be transformed, to be changed, to grow and to mature, to keep going so that he knows what? He did not run in vain. That's the greatest gift to give a seasoned congregational leader who had a psychologist wrongly tell him once, people do not change. Yes, they do. We have the Ruach HaKodesh. We have God. We have Messiah. We're in the new covenant. We're going to start out somewhere in the new creation, and we're never going to look back, and we're going to grow into it. And when Howard is done with his tenure, he will will say to himself, 
you know what? I didn't run in vain. They did grow. They did change. They did mature. And that is my challenge to us in the passionate way that I make challenges in my life. And so I see it's 1224, so you'll get homework assignments because we'll never get to all my material. We would need the Olam Haba for that. But how about this? We take, as we go into Rosh Hashanah, we take a 360-degree approach to our turning to God in preparation for that and for the whole new year. You know, 360 degrees is a what? A circle. That means that we turn to God no matter what angle of life we find ourselves in. Good, neutral, bad. We turn to God in it all. Do you know that's the approach of Psalm 139? Did you see that? Even though it's not completed, do you see there's a circle around it? And you remember Howard actually used the words like, search me and know me. He used that in his sermon. I got that in my notes. And so I said to myself, we got to go to Psalm 139. So homework assignment is go to Psalm 139. And here's one of its major points. And you put yourself in the eye. I am never out of your sight. Got service? Not out of his sight. Got good? Not out of his sight. Got trouble? Not out of his sight. Got economic hardship? Not out of his sight. And that psalm is a transparent pouring yourself out to God to say, search me, probe me. Let's see. This is a kind of an interpretive translation of the last two verses of Psalm 139. Examine me, O God, and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my concerns that caused me to pray this prayer and write this psalm. And see if there's in me any way of, go look at uh, that word there in Hebrew and go look at Leslie Allen's work on that. And he says, you can't tell if it's pain and if it's your pain or if there's a way you're causing other people pain. And you can't tell if that's not the word for idolatry. And I would argue it's divinely ambiguous to cover it all. See if there's any way of pain on causing myself, pain on causing others, or idolatry that is stealing my heart away from you. I vest more in that than I would ever vest in the Veahafta and the Elenu. And I have to fix that in my life. And guide me in, it's ambiguous again. Is it the ancient or is it the everlasting way? And again, I think it's ambiguous so that it's both. It's the ancient way he called Abraham to, and it's the everlasting way that will march you right through this life into the Olam Haba. What's at stake in asking the Lord to examine us and put us to the test as we enter New Year? It's the same answer, the presence of God and Messiah among us. Don't rob yourself. Don't rob your congregation. Don't rob the world. <clears throat> And it's our ability to display the new creation in Messiah and shine like the nighttime stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You have all the verses. This is my final exhortation, and I point you to two other things that you read on your own time. Pay careful attention then to how you walk. That's the word. That also means live. It's the word translates like halakha. It's that word in Greek. Pay careful attention to how you walk how you live, not as unwise people, 
but as wise people, making the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. Anybody under 20 in here? Anybody under 25 in here? Yeah. Ever hear of the band called London Grammar? I heard of a band called London Grammar and the song played. And you know what it was? Maybe I'm wasting my young years. Listen to how she sings it. Maybe I'm wasting my young years. That was terrible, but you get the point. I can sing, but boy, that was bad. Maybe it was bad on purpose. Maybe I'm wasting my young years. I beg you not to waste your young years. And then let's not waste our adult years because every single day is a day of progress. Why is this so important at this moment? Because the days are evil. I get out of the slide deck and I take you to Bible works. We got time for this. 2 Timothy 3. Know this, hard times will come in last days. Last days? There's so many last days used in the scriptures, but this one has to do since Yeshua come, since Yeshua came, there's this final last days. Look what it says. Know this. Not party times will come, hard times will come. What will people be like in this time period? People will be lovers of self, self-lovers, conceited, narcissistic, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unholy, unholy. Put an un in front of that. Unloving, irreconcilable, slanderous, no self-control, brutal, without love for what is good. No, in fact, calling what is good evil and calling what is evil good. Straight out of what book? Thank you for saying Isaiah. Traitors, reckless, conceited, pleasure lovers rather than, rather than lovers of God. Who are the lovers of God? Those who are marked by the veahafta, printed, imprinted on their heart because you've got a heart of flesh. And it's now on your heart, and you're able to pour out the Vehafta in the Elena. Rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness. That likely means they're not talking about the world, they're talking about the professed followers of God, but denying its power. And what's it say to do? Imagine Paul said, avoid these people. And after we finish that, I urge you then to read this, which I... I made 60, 60 copies or 70 copies of this morning. And you were sent this as a guest, right? As a guest derash on email. This is from Rabbi Aaron Allsbrook in Springfield, Virginia. We made it our guest derash this week to give Howard a break. It's the sixth Haftarav consolation from Isaiah 61 through 22. What's the point of it? We live in a time of darkness when people do whatever they please. Sounds like the whole summation of major books of the Tanakh, doesn't it? It's a time when, look, people call evil good and good evil, light, darkness, and darkness, light, bitter, sweet, and sweet, bitter, Isaiah 5.20. And the good news, it's only going to get darker. Imagine he called that the good news. What is wrong with this rabbi? Read the whole thing. Because he not only points to darkness, he gets here. There's another side to the story. Arise, shine, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And then he goes on to tell you about light and hope unspeakable until he gets to this when we walk by God's spirit. That's what we're calling for in the new creation, in the new year. And he closes with, this is hope. This is what people need to hear. He will take people 
men and women out of darkness. The darkness may continue to spread, but the light of Yeshua will simultaneously grow better. The Jewish pseudepigraphal literature, which I have studied, says uh, as the world ages, more and more people will not be the followers of God, so the world will be so diluted. Just a few followers of God in in an ocean of people who, who could care less about God. And he says, the writer, it will be very difficult for those people. We live in difficult times. I'm asking us to be shining stars in a crooked and perverse generation. And I'm saying Yeshua died, rose again, ascended, sat down, inaugurated the kingship, and made us able to do it. Let's show Howard we're capable of profound transformation in this new year. Let's pray. Avino Malkeinu, we take Psalm 139 so seriously, those of us who are in Messiah. We thank you in Messiah, we're a new creation. We ask that you would search us, prove us, try us, refine us, transform us, take us from wherever we walk, from wherever we are. We want to take those next steps until we reach the Olam Haba in a way that makes Howard know he didn't run in vain and in a way that you know what you did was not in vain for us. We ask this in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.